All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner. Today, we are looking at the back half of Article 7 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, beginning in paragraph 23. In this article, and this, especially this part this week, we are looking at the fact that the Roman theologians demanded that the church be defined as anybody who subscribes to the teachings of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And anyone who is outside of that fellowship is outside of salvation. And that was the big problem in the definition of the church and the Reformation. So we begin by looking at paragraphs 23 and 24 of this article. The adversaries perhaps require that the church be defined in the following way. To them, the church is the supreme outward monarchy of the whole world. In this church, the Roman pontiff's power is unquestioned. No one is allowed to argue against it or criticize it. He sets up articles of faith or abolishes them and abolishes the scriptures according to his pleasure. He approves worship ceremonies and sacrifices to frame whatever laws he may wish. He dispenses and exempts from whatever laws, divine, canonical, or civil, whom he may wish. From him, the emperor and all kings receive the power and right to hold their kingdoms according to Christ's command. It must be understood that this right was transferred from Christ, since the Father subjected all things to him, to the Pope. Therefore, the Pope must necessarily be Lord of the whole world, of all the kingdoms of the world, of all things private and public. He must have absolute power in earthly and spiritual things, and both sorts, the spiritual and the temporal. Besides this definition, not of Christ's church, but of the papal kingdom, has as its authors not only the canon lawyers, but also Daniel 11, 36-39. So yes, according to the Roman Catholic doctrine, especially of the Middle Ages and getting into the Reformation and then even further on until maybe the last couple of editions of the Catechism do have the church being the entire world who is subject to the Pope. If anyone is not subjected to the Pope, they are not part of the church. They are not getting saved. Now, there has been some uh, minor variations over the last couple of centuries, especially in the idea of the temporal sword that the Pope is supposed to wield, as well as the spiritual one, that he is able to crown kings and emperors and take them away and decide who he wants running the country, which is not exactly the way the Holy Roman Empire worked in the first place in the 16th century, because there were seven electors, and the Pope was not one of them, although three of them were archbishops. So I'm presuming that the Pope had at least almost half the vote there if they were going to side with the Pope and keep their jobs. So what does Melanchthon mean by saying that the definition of the papal kingdom and this, as we'll go on to say, the Antichrist kingdom have in Daniel 11? So here's what Daniel 11, 36 to 39 says. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. 
He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. This is in that time where we have Daniel seeing the kingdom of the Antichrist being brought up in this time. There are many different translations and interpretations of what Daniel is saying in these last visions, in the last half of his book, and lots of confusion. But the one thing that is clear from this passage, there was a king that was coming, now still in the future in Daniel's time, that was going to take over the whole world, not by might, but by his own proclamation and declaration. And that is exactly what the Pope did. And by the time of the 16th century in the Reformation, yes, the Pope was considered ultimately the king of the entire world, regardless of who was actually the temporal king of the kingdom that you lived in. And so again, with the confutation and with the writings of the Roman theologians against Luther, they're trying to make this point very clear, that if you side with Luther, if you side with any of those who have broken off after Luther, you are outside the church because you are not submitting yourself to the Pope. And this is not the way Christ set up his church, because as Melanchthon says, kind of tongue-in-cheek, it must be understood that this right of the Pope was transferred from Christ, since the Father subjected all things to him, to the Pope. That somewhere along the line, that Jesus appeared to the Pope, whichever Pope, we don't know, don't care, and said, you are now the ruler of the whole world. I am giving you the entire world. That would be very nice if that ever actually happened. All right, we move on to paragraphs 25 through 29. Now, if we would define the church in this way, we would perhaps have fairer judges. For there exist many excessive and wicked writings about the Pope of Rome's power, for which no one has ever been charged. We alone are blamed because we proclaim Christ's graciousness, that by faith in Christ we obtain forgiveness of sins, and not by worship ceremonies created by the Pope. Furthermore, Christ, the prophets, and the apostles define Christ's church very different than the papal kingdom. Neither must we transfer to the popes what belongs to the true church, as though the popes are pillars of the truth who do not err. How many of the popes care for the gospel or judge that it is worthy of even being read? Many in Italy and elsewhere even publicly ridicule all religions. For if they approve anything, they approve only things that are in harmony with human reason. They regard the rest like fables and like the tragedies of the poets. According to the scriptures, we hold that the church, properly called, is the congregation of saints who truly believe Christ's gospel and have the Holy Spirit. We confess that in this life, many hypocrites and wicked people are mixed in with these. They have the fellowship and outward signs, are members of the church according to this fellowship and outward signs, and so hold offices in the church, preach, administer the sacraments, and bear the title and name of Christians. However, the fact that the sacraments are administered by the unworthy does not detract from the sacrament's power. Because of the call of the church, the unworthy still represent the person of Christ and do not represent their own persons, as Christ testifies, the one who hears you hears me, Luke 10, 16. 
Even Judas was sent to preach. When they offer God's word, they offer the sacraments, they offer them in the stead and place of Christ. Those words of Christ teach us not to be offended by the unworthiness of the ministers. So again, we have the definition of the church being the communion of saints, that congregation of those who truly believe Christ's gospel and take the sacraments as Christ has administered them and instituted them. But he also brings in the point that, yes, in this life, there are hypocrites. There are wicked people who join themselves to the church, even hold offices in the church to preach and administer the sacraments. Because Luke 10, 16, and in that surrounding pericope, we have Jesus sending out the twelve two by two. Judas was sent out to preach. Judas brought people to Jesus. But Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. Does that negate any of his preaching beforehand? No. Just like pastors today who fall and are removed from clergy rosters and are no longer qualified by the Bible standards to be pastors anymore, that does not negate any of the preaching they did, none of the sacraments that they administered. So if you have received communion, as I have, from a pastor who is now no longer a pastor through sins of his own, or your child was baptized, or you were baptized by someone who has later turned from the faith, your baptism is still valid. The sacraments you received are still valid. The preaching he had was still valid because it is not based on him. It is based on the word of God. That is what we believe, not the pastor's own personal worthiness of being in that role. Because honestly, every one of us who are in that role would say, I am not worthy to be in this position, but God has called me anyway. And so we do as God calls us. We move on and do paragraphs 29 to 31. In the confession, we said clearly enough that we condemn the Donatist and the Wycliffists. They thought that people sinned when they received the sacraments from the unworthy in the church. These points seem, for the present, to be enough for the defense of our description of the church. Neither do we see how, when the church, properly called, is named the body of Christ, it should be described differently than we have described it. For it is clear that the wicked belong to the devil's kingdom and body. He drives them on and holds them captive. Such things are clearer than the light of noonday. However, if the adversaries continue to pervert them, we will not hesitate to reply at greater length. The adversaries also condemn the part of Article 7 in which we said that for the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be the same everywhere. Here we distinguish between universal and particular rites. They approve our article if it is understood concerning particular rights. They do not approve it concerning universal rights. We do not completely understand what the adversaries mean. We are speaking of true spiritual unity. Without faith in the heart or righteousness of heart before God, such unity cannot exist. Similarity of human ceremonies, whether universal or particular, is not necessary. 
The righteousness of faith is not a righteousness bound to certain traditions. The righteousness of the law was bound to the Mosaic ceremonies. But righteousness of the heart is a matter that enlivens the heart. Human traditions, whether they are universal or particular, contribute nothing to this new life. Neither are traditions effects of the Holy Spirit as our self-control, patience, the fear of God, love for one's neighbor, and the works of love. All right, so Article 7 was condemned in part because we said that we don't have to have the exact same service in every single church, regardless of the background that we have, whether we are German or British or Norwegian or Swedish or whatever our background might be, that those things, that part of our heritage who makes us who we are, should not have any place in the church. That is what the church in Rome said, because the Pope says what is and is not a valid service. And that is where we get into the universal rights, which is what the Pope declared had to be in these services, and the particular rights, which is what Sunday you celebrate LWML Sunday in October, or whether you celebrate October as Pastor Appreciation Month, or you have a chicken dinner or a fish fry or whatever that your congregation might do on its own, that is perfectly acceptable. That would be a particular right and has nothing to do with what the Pope would have to say. But the Lutherans also said there are a lot of the things that are universal rights in the sacrifice of the Mass that we must get rid of because they cloud the gospel of Christ. So you do not have to have the same service everywhere, which is why when you look at Lutheran Service Book, you do have five settings of the divine service. You have morning prayer and evening prayer. You have matins and vespers. You have the service of prayer and preaching. You have responsive prayer services. You don't have to have the same service every week. Now, there are benefits to repetition, but it is not to be required as something that is necessary for your salvation to have those things. All right, enough of my soapbox there. Continuing on into 32 through 34. The reasons why we presented this article were not small. Clearly, many foolish opinions about traditions had crept into the church. Some thought that human traditions were necessary services for earning justification. Afterward, they argued how God came to be worshipped with such variety, as though these observances were acts of worship and not outward and political ordinances. Such ordinances have no connection with the righteousness of heart or the worship of God. These ordinances vary according to the circumstances for certain probable reasons, sometimes in one way and other times in another. Likewise, some churches have excommunicated others because of such traditions as the observance of Easter, icons, and the like. So the ignorant have imagined that faith, or the righteousness of the heart before God, cannot exist without these ceremonies. Many foolish writings of the summist and of others exist on this matter. We believe that the true unity of the church is not injured by dissimilar ceremonies instituted by humans, just as the dissimilar length of day and night does not injure the unity of the church. However, it is pleasing to us that for the sake of peace, universal ceremonies are kept. We also willingly keep the order of the Mass in the churches, the Lord's Day, and other famous festival days. With a very grateful mind, we include the beneficial and ancient ordinances, especially since they contain a discipline. This discipline is beneficial for educating and training the people and those who are ignorant, the young people. 
We are not discussing now whether it is helpful to keep them because of peace or bodily profit. We speak of something else. The question at hand is whether the observances of human traditions are acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God. This is the point to be judged in this controversy. When this is decided, it can be judged later whether it is necessary that human tradition should everywhere be the same for the unity of the true church. For if human traditions are not acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God, it follows that those not having the traditions received elsewhere can be righteous and the sons of God as well. For example, if the style of German clothing is not worship of God and necessary for righteousness before God, it follows that people can be righteous and God's sons and Christ's church, even though they use a costume that is not German, but French. All right, so, again, the question at hand here is not whether we have to have the same service and everything has to be the same. It is, are these things building up for the faith? Do these things belong to the righteousness of faith in the heart before God? If they do, then they need to be kept the same. If they do not, like clothing, they do not need to be. But the Pope wants to make everything universal and not particular. We move on into 35 and through 37. Paul clearly teaches this to the Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Likewise, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. The meaning is this. Righteousness of the heart is a spiritual matter, a matter of enlivening hearts. Clearly, human traditions do not enliven hearts and are not effects of the Holy Spirit. Such efforts are love for one's neighbor, self-control, and so on. They are not tools through which God moves hearts to believe, as are the divinely given word and sacraments. Rather, traditions are customs that have no connection to the heart. They perish with the using, and we must not believe that they are necessary for righteousness before God. To the same effect, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14.17 But there is no need to cite many testimonies, for they are everywhere clear in the scriptures, and we have gathered many of them in the later articles of our confession. In this controversy, the point to be decided must be repeated, namely, whether human traditions are acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God. In due course, we will discuss this matter more fully. So again, the righteousness of the heart before God is a spiritual matter. It is not a political matter. It is not a geographic matter. It is a matter of, do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you have faith? That is the thing. And the things that promote the Holy Spirit, the Word, and the sacraments, the things that promote the growth in faith, again, the Word and the sacraments, these are the important things. These are the things that cannot be gotten rid of. The other things, the traditions that go on from one place to another and are different, have no connection to the heart other than the sentimental idea of them being of part of our heritage. 
And again, that is not a matter of salvation. That is simply a human desire to be and proclaim things in the way that we can understand them and that we can bring ourselves around as a local congregation to do. All right, we move on. Paragraphs 38 through 44. Excuse me, a little frog in my throat here. The adversaries say that universal traditions should be observed because they were supposedly handed down by the apostles. What religious men they are! They wish that the ceremonies received from the apostles be kept, yet they do not wish the apostles' doctrine to be kept. They should judge these rites just as the apostles themselves judge them in their writings. For the apostles did not want us to believe that we are justified through such ceremonies, or that such ceremonies are necessary for righteousness before God. The apostles did not want to put such a burden upon consciences. They did not want to place righteousness and sin in the observance of days, food, and the like. Yes, Paul calls such opinions teachings of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. Therefore, the apostles' will and advice should be taken from their writings. It is not enough to mention their example. The apostles observed certain days, not because this observance was necessary for justification, but in order that the people might know at what time they should gather. They observed also certain other ceremonies and orders of lessons wherever they gathered. The people kept the customs of the fathers from their Jewish festivals and ceremonies. As is commonly the case, the apostles adapted to the history of the gospel certain things, although somewhat changed. Among these things were the Passover and Pentecost. The apostles, by teaching, but also through these examples, they might hand down to posterity the memory of the most important subjects. But if these things were handed down as necessary for justification, why afterward did the bishops change many things in these very matters? If they were matters of divine right, it was not lawful to change them by human authority. Before the Senate of Nicaea, some observed Easter at one time and others observed it at another time. Neither did this lack of uniformity harm faith. Afterward, the plan was adopted by which our Passover, Easter, did not fall at the same time as that of the Jewish Passover. The apostles had commanded the churches to observe the Passover with the brethren who had been converted from Judaism. Therefore, after the Council of Nicaea, certain nations held firmly to the custom of observing the Jewish time. The apostles by this decree did not wish to put a demand upon the churches, as the words of the decree testify. For it asked no one to be troubled, even though his brothers and sisters in observing Easter do not change the time correctly. The words of the decree are found in Epiphanius. Do not calculate, but celebrate it whenever your brethren of the circumcision do. Celebrate it at the same time with them, and even though they may have erred, let not this be a care to you. Epiphanius writes that these words are the words presented in a decree about Easter. The wise reader can easily conclude from the decree that the apostles wished to free the people from the foolish opinion of a fixed time, to help them from being troubled if a mistake should be made in setting that date. However, some in the East who followed the teaching of audience argued that because of this decree of the apostles, the Passover should be observed with the Jews. In refuting them, Epiphanius praises the decree and says that it contains nothing that departs from the faith or rule of the church. He blames the audience because they do not correctly understand the expression. Epiphanius interprets it in the sense in which we interpret it, because the apostles thought it unimportant what time the Passover should be observed. Nevertheless, for harmony's sake, and because prominent brothers and sisters have been converted from the Jews who observed their custom, the adversaries wished to the rest to follow their example. They wisely warned the reader neither to remove the freedom of the gospel nor to burden consciences. 
The apostles thought that consciences should not be troubled, even though there should be an error in setting the date. All right, one of the biggest things in the Council of Nicaea in 325 was the fact that not everybody celebrated Easter the same way. Some celebrated as the Jews did when they celebrated Easter on the day of the Passover. Others celebrated it the Sunday after. After a while it became, and especially with the Council of Nicaea and the Gregorian date, as opposed to the Julian date, which gets into a whole nother realm of things, that it becomes now the first Sunday after the first full moon, no, first new moon, of the after the spring equinox. Which means, granted, yes, it moves around. So it's not the same date every year. It's not even the same Sunday every year. Which is why, yes, you can have Easter as early as March 22nd. You can have it as late as April 25th because it is a movable feast. Not that we can just decide to put it whenever. Now, granted, there might be some reason, such as last year's COVID uh, scare, where everyone canceled their services, and even through Easter, and some went back to actually celebrate Easter the first Sunday that they were able to come back into worship. Others just went on with where they were in the cycle of the church year. Is that a big deal? Absolutely not. It is what the congregations thought that they should do for their people, to bring them into where they were and to bring Christ gifts to them, because that is the important thing. It's not when you celebrate, it's that you celebrate, because the Passover, Easter is the celebration of our victory over sin, death, and the devil through Jesus' death and resurrection. That has to be celebrated. And again, you can have many people who will talk and say that every Sunday is really a little Easter. And that is exactly true, because in every Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord is proclaimed. It doesn't matter what passage your pastor is preaching on, the resurrection of Jesus is firmly set forth. And if not, I would suggest you find another church. All right, we move on. 45 through the end of the article, paragraph 50. Many things like this can be collected from the historical accounts. In them it appears that a lack of uniformity in human observances does not harm the unity of faith. What need is there of discussion? The adversaries do not at all understand what the righteousness of faith is, what Christ's kingdom is. That is clear when they judge that uniformity of observances in food, days, clothing, and the like, which do not have God's command, is necessary. Look at these religious men, our adversaries. They require uniform human observances for the unity of the church. They do this even though they themselves changed Christ's ordinance in the use of the supper, which certainly was a universal ordinance before. If universal ordinances are so necessary, why do they themselves change the ordinance of Christ's Supper, which is not human, but divine? We will have to speak about this entire controversy a little later. Article 8 has been improved entirely in which we confess that hypocrites and wicked persons have been mixed in with the church and that the sacraments are powerful even though given by wicked ministers. 
Ministers act in Christ's place and do not represent their own persons, according to Luke. The one who hears you hears me, chapter 10, verse 16 again. Ungodly teachers are to be deserted because they no longer act in Christ's place, but are antichrist. Christ says, beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15. Paul says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, Galatians 1, 9. Furthermore, Christ has warned us concerning the church and his parables. When offended by the private sins of priests or people, we should not stir up divisions as the Donatists have wickedly done. However, concerning those who have stirred up division because they denied that priests are permitted to hold possessions and property, we hold that they are completely rebellious. To hold property is a civil ordinance. It is lawful, however, for Christians to use civil ordinances just as they use the air, the light, food, and drink. For as this order of the world and fixed movements of the heavenly bodies are truly God's ordinances and are preserved by God, so lawful governments are truly God's ordinances, preserved and defended by God against the devil. So far, Article 7 of the Apology. What is it here? Quite honestly, Article 7 and 8 in the Apology set up for a lot of what is said in Articles 21 through 28 in the Apology. But Melanchthon doesn't want to get into a long diatribe here when he can handle it much better, having built up a little bit more. And we'll see that over the next few weeks as we go through some of the other articles that springboard off of what is the church. Is the church the monarchy of the pope, or is it the people who listen and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that is the true church right there. Those who believe that Jesus died and rose for their sins, that forgiveness is only through him and through faith. That is the only place where righteousness can be found. And that is what Melanchthon has done in this entire article about the church, is not to make it a political thing, not to make it something where we have to have some sort of concrete definition, because the definition is there already. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and they follow me. That is the definition of the church. All right, that's it for this week. I've gone on a little long this week, but I wanted to make sure I got this whole half of the article taken care of because this is an important thing, and there's not really a place to break it up into a third section. So thank you for your time. This has been Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner. Wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.